How rare, how rare in the, in the world. How to free yourself from the enchantment of the tangle of thoughts. How to free yourself from the enchantment of thoughts about a happy time in the past. How to free yourself from thoughts of a very difficult or traumatic time in the past. How to free yourself from the enchantment of the tangle of thoughts of an imagined happy time in the future. How to free yourself from the enchantment of the tangle of thoughts of an imagined disastrous time in the future. Does our mind enjoy all of these thoughts, even the difficult ones? Investigate. free ourselves from the prison of thoughts, we have to have a glimpse of the freedom that arises when you realize certain things about your thoughts. First is that your thoughts are seldom telling you the truth. Any thought about the past cannot be true. Partially true, perhaps. If you have 100 people at an event, there are 100 different versions of what happened. If you have two people at an event, there are two versions of what happened. And as time passes, the gap between what actually happened, if a videotape recorded it, and our thoughts about what happened get more and more divergent. In fact, there are many gaps Research shows there are many gaps in our awareness, and our mind just fills that in willy-nilly to create something that seems coherent. And we call that my past. And then we get upset about it, or we chew on it, or we soothe ourselves with it. So the past is not the truth. And the future is not the truth. It hasn't even come. And we could imagine a hundred different versions of the future, and they won't manifest. Maybe a little bit. But think of all the wasted thinking. And fantasies are definitely not the truth. And these are the three places the mind tends to go when it's not resting here at ease in the present to the past, to the future, and to fantasies. So that brings up the question, are there thoughts in the present? If you're really resting in the present, fully aware of the present, are there thoughts in the present? Or are all thoughts always about another time or place? Are your thoughts off the present place and moment? Or if you look carefully, are they even a millisecond removed from the present? Some thoughts are way removed from the present, right, by years. But as our mind becomes more and more aware of subtleties, 
in the mind, then we can start looking at, oh, when I'm walking and outside, sunshine hits my face and I think sunshine. Is that a millisecond removed from being present? Another way to free ourselves from the prison of thoughts is to realize that you are not your thoughts. We had a student a long time ago, two decades ago, who was tortured by his mind. And to try to relieve that torture, that very dark, negative uh, way of thinking constantly, he first tried uh, seeing if he could go to a place where he wasn't frightened by his thoughts, where he wasn't upset by his thoughts. So he started thinking darker and darker thoughts on purpose. And that did not end well. And then he was reading uh, a book. And the book said, by an American Zen teacher, and it said, you're not your thoughts. And that was like a light bulb going on in the midst of the darkness. He realized that freedom was possible. And so he began practicing Zen. This one sentence was a huge relief to him that he was not his thoughts. Do you believe that? That you are not your thoughts? What percentage of the time? There's a third way to free yourself from the prison of thoughts. Everyone has had an experience of what lies behind thought. Everyone, however brief. We call them peak moments. Times when our mind stood still, shifted from thought to awareness, and we were completely and purely present. You never forget these moments because they were not manufactured by the mind. The mind had to stand out of the way for these moments to occur. I remember a glimpse when I was 14 or 15 and I was waiting for a bus in Korea at night by myself. And I was looking up at the sky, which was unobstructed by light. Well, Korea was very poor at the time. And so the sky was pitch dark, and it was filled with stars. And suddenly, my mind zoomed out into the infinity of space. And I could see myself on that pitch dark road as a tiny speck in a vast universe. I was both the tiny speck with the upturned face and the whole of space, stars, cosmic dust. Time stood still. Then it started again as the headlights of the bus came around the bend and the bus stopped and the young, insignificant girl and the immense universe got on the bus. 
Each person has had their own glimpse, perhaps witnessing a birth, perhaps being present at death, perhaps as death came around a corner and barely missed you, or at a seemingly random and seemingly insignificant time, like seeing a dead cat in a gutter or standing in awe under a thousand-year-old redwood, experiencing its wisdom, or sitting in thick darkness in a cave a mile of ancient rock above you, slowly dripping, or suddenly seeing, really seeing a single flower, or looking into the eyes of a startled, frozen deer, or being pierced by sweet music, or on a drug trip. Once we've had a glimpse, we try to re-enter that elusive doorway. We try drugs and sex and food and exhaustion and buying new stuff or seducing a new partner or standing in the very same place at the very same time hoping the deer will show up again or holding the same kind of flower closer to our eyes, and it doesn't work. Because deep down we know that as long as we are dependent upon this other thing, a person, a redwood, a crow, a certain piece of music at a certain time, a dead cat, or a drug, it cannot work. If we're dependent on another, then that dependence is always fear-based. And fear will completely close down the door. If our happiness depends on something, someone else, we will always live in the fear that our supply will be cut off which it will because of impermanence. Our supply of over-the-counter remedies will be cut off because of impermanence. And then we come to practice. The promise is that we ourselves, by ourselves, with the help of teachers and the Sangha, will be able to open that door. and see again what we glimpsed differently every time. We begin practice. We walk through that door again and again. We discover other doors. Then we discover many doors. Then we discover an infinity of Dharma doors. And then we discover that there are only doors. And then the notion that there are doors at all suddenly drops away. And we are left with what? What are we left with? Is there a we to be left with what? But this takes hard work. Even the Buddha, a person who saw and said that he had worked for many lifetimes on his fundamental koan, 
the source and cure for human suffering. Had to undergo hard practice in the forests of India 2,560 years ago. We have accounts of the practice he underwent in his search. From the Pali Canon, having gone forth in search of what might be skillful, seeking the unexcelled state of sublime speech, I went to Alara Kalama and on arrival said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to practice in this doctrine and discipline. He replied to me, You may stay here, my friend. This doctrine is such that a wise person can soon enter and dwell in his own teacher's knowledge, having realized it for himself through direct knowledge. Having realized it for themselves through direct knowledge. The Buddha continues, It was not long before I learned the doctrine. As far as mere lip reciting and repetition, I could speak the words of knowledge, the words of the elders, and I could affirm that I knew and saw. I thought, it isn't through mere conviction alone that Alara Kalama declares, I have entered and dwelt in this Dhamma, having realized it for myself through direct knowledge. Certainly, he dwells knowing and seeing this Dhamma. So I went to him and said, to what extent do you declare that you have entered and dwelt in this Dhamma? When this was said, he declared the dimension of nothingness. So the Buddha is able to, you know, let's say, talk about, uh, in, in our context, you're able after years of sitting in the Zendo to talk about the Four Noble Truths and uh, the factors of enlightenment and the hindrances and you've experienced something of those for yourself. And, but then you know there's something else that my teacher experiences. What is it? So the Buddha goes to Alara Kalama and says, what is it? What are you dwelling in? And Alara Kalama then teaches, declares the dimension of nothingness. And the Buddha says, I thought not only does Alara Kalama have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, I too have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. What if I were to endeavor to realize for myself the Dhamma that Alara Kalama declares that he has entered and dwells in? So it was not long before I quickly entered and dwelled in that Dhamma, having realized it for myself through direct knowing, I went to him and said, Friend Kalama, is this the extent to which you have entered and dwelt in this Dhamma? He responded, Yes, my friend. And the Buddha said, This friend is the extent to which I too have entered and dwelt in the Dhamma. So this is a mutual recognition between teacher and student. And Alara Kalama says, it is a gain for us, my friend, a great gain for us that we have such a companion, us meaning himself and the Sangha, that we have such a companion in the holy life. And then he says, what I have declared that I have realized for myself, now you have entered and dwelt in, having realized it for yourself. So he's then Alara Kalama says to the Buddha, 
As I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Come, friend, let us now lead this community together. And then the Buddha continues, in this way did Alara Kalama, my teacher, place me, his pupil, on the same level with himself and pay me great honor. But the thought occurred to me, this Dhamma leads not to this enchantment, to this fashion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, nor to nirvana, unbinding, but only to reappearance in the dimension of nothingness. So dissatisfied with that Dhamma, I left. So the Buddha knew for himself, this, this is not the end. This is pleasant, perhaps, dwelling in nothingness, dwelling in no thought, but it's not the end. So then he goes to another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta, and there's the same discourse. He asks to study with Udaka Ramaputta. He studies with Udaka Ramaputta. Intense study asks for then, learns, to, learns the doctrine, can recite the doctrine and teach it quite well, but then realize there's something else. And so he asks for and is taught the ultimate teaching of Udaka Ramaputta. And when this was requested, Udaka declared the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. And he asks the Buddha to study this, and when the Buddha completely penetrates this teaching of neither perception nor non-perception, then again, he's asked to sit on the same seat and teach as a co-teacher with Udaka Ramaputta. But again, the thought occurs to the Buddha. This is not complete. This only leads to reappearance in the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. So he leaves. And then the Buddha begins to work really hard. And there's a lot in the uh, sutras about what he does. Uh, I can read you a little bit of it. It's fairly extensive, but it gives you an idea of how hard even the Buddha had to read, had to work. So he turns to practicing extreme austerities in the forest. So he's on his own now without a teacher. So he's, he's inventing his own practices, hoping that this will help him break through finally. I thought, suppose that I, clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth, were to beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my awareness. So clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my, my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my awareness just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, constrain and crush him in the same way I beat down, etc. As I did so, sweat poured from my armpits, and although tireless persistence was aroused in me, an unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the painful exertion. But the painful feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remained. I thought, suppose I were to become absorbed in the trance of non-breathing. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my nose and mouth. As I did so, there was a loud roaring of winds coming out my ear holes, just like the loud roar of winds coming out of a smith's bellows. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my nose and mouth. 
And as I did so, extreme forces sliced through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. And then he carries on about extreme burning in my body, just as if two strong men were to roast and broil him over a pit of hot embers. And although tireless persistence was aroused in me, an unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalmed because of the painful exertion. Devas, upon seeing me, said, Gotama the contemplative is dead. Other devas said, he isn't dead, but he's dying. Others said, he's neither dead nor dying, he's an arhat, but this is the way arhats live. I thought, suppose I were to practice going together without food. Then the devas came to me and said, dear sir, please don't practice going altogether without food. If you go altogether without food, we'll infuse divine nourishment in through your pores, and you will survive on that. So he said, if I were to <laughs> claim to be completely fasting while these devas are infusing divine nourishment in through my pores, I would be lying. So I dismissed them, saying, enough. I thought, suppose I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, veg soup, or pea soup. So I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, veg soup, or pea soup. My body became extremely emaciated. Simply from eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of bamboo stems. My backside became like a camel's hoof. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old rundown barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets, like the gleam of water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a green, bitter gourd. The skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine that when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. And so on. His hair falls out. Just if he, would, if he rubbed his body, his hair would fall out. Seeing, people seeing me would say, Gotama, the contemplative, is golden-skinned. So much had the clear, bright color of my skin deteriorated, or he used to be golden-skinned. So much had the clear, bright color of my skin deteriorated simply from eating so little. And then he realized this is not the way either. Then he went into the forest and stayed in terrifying places on purpose to try to conquer his fear. When fear and terror came, I would not stand or sit or lie down. I would keep walking back and forth until I had subdued that fear and terror. And so on. So the Buddha, as we know, practiced great austerities, and the description is pretty alarming, of the, ex of the extremes to which he went. But then he realized this is not the way. I'm going to die, and my search will be unfulfilled. And then, as we all know, he accepted some nourishment, some rice pudding, probably, something like that, or something like a sweet yogurt, and decided to sit under the Bodhi tree. But he sat in a particular way. He remembered when he was a child, and his father was plowing a field, and uh, Siddhartha was as a child, was put under a rose apple tree. 
to rest in the shade. And he entered, uh, it sounds like a spontaneous state of samadhi in the cool of the shade apple tree, in the out of doors, listening perhaps to the birds and the sound of plowing. And he, at this point in his life, he remembered that and decided this is the way I should practice. So too, our practice is a culmination of very hard work and renunciation, giving up all of the comforts of home, being able to go to the refrigerator and eat any time we want, being able to take a hot shower without competition, being able to go to the bathroom or stretch our legs or walk outside any time we want. We purposely put ourselves, as the Buddha did, in a place of constrainment. Adrian McMullen said it, the sashin is like putting a snake in a bamboo tube. And it can't wiggle, so it can't get anywhere. And that's what we do on purpose here in sashin. So that we're forced to look inward. We're forced to look at the prison our mind is constantly creating. And look at it and look at it until we get sick and tired of it. And we're willing to give it up. However, whatever we realize is still conditional, which is exactly what the Buddha realized when he was studying with his first two teachers. And it's life events that help us realize that our clarity, our inner peace, our equanimity, our loving kindness, whatever we've cultivated and developed in our practice, whatever arises and warms our heart during session is still conditional. A phone call to our parents or children, an event in American politics, can shake that equanimity to the core and flip us over on our backs like a helpless turtle. And so we come back to session, not out of failure, but out of honesty, out of clear seeing. I am not yet the person I wish to be that I know instinctively I have the potential to be. Our hearts know that there is further to go on the path, and that path continually calls to us from within. It calls us to our original nature. It calls us to Sashin, where we have this incredible luxury of spending seven days, seven days letting down the walls that keep us from experiencing our original nature and then living it. Dogen Zenji taught that our original nature, our Buddha nature, is inherent. It is hidden only by our thoughts, by our overreactivity to physical sensations, and by the emotions that arise from physical sensations plus a chain of thoughts. Sometimes I send uh, videos to uh, people, including my grandchildren. And I saw a video of small children failing. You know, fails. We seem to be fascinated in this country with fails. So these are kids trying to jump in the swimming pool from a teeter-totter and missing, or riding a bike down a slide and falling off, or swinging at a golf ball and then hitting themselves in the head. The kind of video that is 
funny, but also makes your, your heart lurch each time they show a new kid in a new scenario because you know they're going to fail. But what was most interesting in this video was the reaction of each child. No one was really hurt. You know, they got banged up a bit in hitting the ground. But some kids cried and some laughed. I thought that was so interesting. Same sudden surprise, same fall, but different emotional reaction. What accounts for that? Is it different thoughts in the mind? Is it different conditioning? If it's thoughts in the mind or past conditioning, how wonderful, because if we have practice, we can change that. We're not stuck in an unhappy reaction to life events. We can change our reaction to unexpected events or even abrupt reversals in our life through practice. In the Fukan Zazengi, Dogen Zenji advises, the way is perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? What need is there for special effort? In modern teaching words, well, just sit like a Buddha and your Buddha nature will reveal itself. I would add, if you have a long time to wait. Or don't even sit, because you're always manifesting your original Buddha nature. This has the danger of, of sliding into what's called Bampu Zen. Nothing to do, just everything you do. If you're sleepy, that's a sleepy Buddha. If you're hungry, it's a hungry Buddha. If you're stealing, that's a stealing Buddha. <laughs> Good luck. But Dogen Zenji continues, and yet, if there is a hair's breadth deviation, it is like the gap between heaven and earth. If the least like or dislike arises, it is like the gap between heaven and earth. What does he mean by deviation? If the least deviation arises, deviation from what? What do like and dislike deviate us from? This is really important to, to investigate. not during this session, but in ordinary times we often chant verses of faith mind. It says the exact same thing. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. Those without aversion and clinging. What do like and dislike deviate us from? If we could be free of all thoughts of like and dislike, how would that change our life? That's pretty amazing to contemplate. If you could be free of all thoughts of like and dislike, what would your life be like? All thoughts of and in the extreme, must have it to be happy or got to get rid of it to be happy. But then, as the extremes modify, then it becomes more and more subtle. So what do those thoughts pull us away from? 
Hogan gave a clue last night when he said you can't fall out of the universe. I would add a corollary. You can't fall out of enlightenment. And yet, it can be covered up. Our minds can deviate away from the experience of it. As Hogan mentioned last night, 1,500 years ago, the sixth Zen ancestor, Hui Meng, was cutting firewood when he heard a monk reciting the Diamond Sutra. And a single line penetrated his heart mind and shattered delusion. Produce thought that is nowhere supported, is one translation. Nowhere supported. What does that mean? Thought that is nowhere supported. Supported by nothing. Who is at the center of our thoughts? The impetus for our thoughts. What is the continual support of our thoughts, the origin of our thoughts? What happens if we let go of that center, that support? Accordingly, Hui Neng taught the practice of no thought from which sudden enlightenment would emerge because that was his experience. Hearing that one line tipped him into no thought and then into an opening. Many teachers teach the method that worked for them until they realize that other people are not me. And then there's a lot of work to do. And all of you help us with that work. Understanding. Helping you to understand your own mind helps us to understand the diversity of the big mind. The sixth ancestor preached the Platform Sutra. And he is preaching to an assembly of teachers, and he says, Good knowing advisors, the non-defilement of the mind in all states is called no thought. In your thoughts, you should always be separate from states. Do not give rise to thought about them. So this last week, we've been reading at, bre at the breakfast table some words of Ajahn Chah. And there's a, a very interesting aspect to Ajahn Chah. He was a Thai forest master, very, very revered, no longer alive. But um, Ajahn Sumedho studied under him. Somebody who's still alive has come here to teach. And uh, Ajahn Chah's teacher was Ajahn Mun. But when you read Ajahn Chah's biography, he only was with Ajahn Mun for a few days when something that Ajahn Mun said struck in the same way that that one line struck the sixth ancestor and completely opened Ajahn Chah's mind. So Ajahn Mun said something, we don't have the exact quote, something about states of mind are not the mind. States of mind are not the mind. So the difference, we might say, between the small mind and the, and the great mind. But states of mind are not our true mind, our original mind, our original nature. So can we see the difference between mind and mind, between states of mind 
constantly changing states of mind and mind. It's the difference between the experience of being struck silent by a sunset, time standing still for a few moments, and the experience of hearing someone or your own mind saying, isn't that a beautiful sunset? Completely different. And yet, we let our mind prattle on and on. But here we have a chance to get beyond that. How to approach the, dim the diminishment of thought that all the great teachers recommend? How to approach the settling of the mind? Those of us who haven't been instantly enlightened by hearing a few words of Dhamma when our mind happened to be idle, how do we practice? Concentration. In my experience, it cannot be bypassed. In my own experience and in my experience teaching, it cannot be bypassed. We want to go straight for a luminous, boundless mind, but our experience is tight, complaining, restless, crazy mind. We have to sit and use a method to concentrate and settle the mind. How to go from small mind to big mind. Master Sun Hua says that we do it in stages. We go from wild scattered mind to simpler mind to one-pointed mind and eventually we fall into no mind. But do you see, as you do it, as you do this, these very practices, it is a bigger mind that is already operational, helping us to know which mind state we are in. So there is already something larger than mind states. It is one of the most curious and beautiful aspects of our practice. We can use our mind to train our mind. Our larger mind says to our smaller mind, okay, now focus on the gentle in and out rhythm of the breath. Or our larger mind says, now listen to in more and more clarity and detail to sounds. Our larger mind no notices that our smaller mind has strayed away and gently brings it back. Our larger mind tells the smaller mind, concentrate more steadily and stably. Our larger mind notices how crazy the smaller mind is. I have a game I play with myself during session and I try to remember the craziest thing my mind said. So yesterday I came up with something kind of weird. My mind is, so I'm sitting and you know breathing and so on, flowing with the breath and then my mind says, consider the two customers. Like, what? <laughs> So this is a kind of bubbling up that happens as the mind quiets and stuff comes up from our experience or not my experience as far as I know from the great storehouse of all experiences, all thought, Alayavijnana. So know that that bubbling up, sometimes I call it channel surfing in the, in the mind, is is part of the settling of the mind and we begin to tap into something that's larger. So even when my mind then said, what? That's the larger mind already operational. It is nowhere but within you. 
Eventually, the babbling of the smaller mind stops catching your attention. You become actually bored with it. You're much more interested in the lovely flow of the breath, the ever-changing symphony of sound. And then, when you least expect it, the small mind may stop. And there is a boundless, blessed silence. It's like when the exhaust fan is running in the kitchen. And you stop noticing that it's making this huge racket. And then somebody turns it off, and there's this abrupt, blessed silence. When you're concentrating in a sustained, stable way during session, once in a while, you stop the active practice of concentrating, and you see what is there. At a certain stage, usually after the second or third day, when you stop the effort of concentrating, to your surprise, the mind remains quiet. Until it starts up again. Maybe in a few minutes, maybe in an hour, maybe in a day, and then you apply concentration again. Out of concentration, out of quiet mind, wisdom can emerge into the mind, and when appropriate, into speech. However, it is not my mind which is functioning, but rather my mind is being used as a conduit for a timeless wisdom. The sixth ancestor said this in the Patpam Sutra. The master instructed the assembly, good knowing advisors, this Dharma door of mine has concentration and wisdom as its foundation. Great assembly, do not be confused and say that concentration and wisdom are different. Concentration and wisdom are one substance, not two. Concentration is the substance of wisdom, and wisdom is the function of concentration. Where there is wisdom, concentration is in the wisdom. Where there is concentration, wisdom is in the concentration. If you understand this principle, you understand the balanced study of concentration and wisdom. Students of the way, do not say that first there is concentration, which produces wisdom. It's wisdom that brings us here and leads us to concentration. Or that first there is wisdom, which produces concentration. Do not say that the two are different. To hold this view implies a duality of dharma. Good knowing advisors, what are concentration and wisdom like? They are like a lamp and its light. With the lamp, there is light. Without the lamp, there is darkness. The lamp is the substance of the light, and the light is the function of the lamp. Although there are two names, there is one fundamental substance. The Dharma of concentration and wisdom is also thus. The night before we began this session, we did Fusatsu, which is the ceremony of repentance, letting, acknowledging completely and letting go of all of the uh, unwise and unskillful things that we had done, and then renewing our vows. And the last of the vows, the, or the, there are the precepts, and of course the precepts are the basis for our practice. One nice thing about session is you pretty much have to keep the precepts. The last of the, at the end of that ceremony are the four great bodhisattva vows. 
And uh, in the Patwam Sutra, the sixth ancestor says, after, after they have done repentance, as you have repented and re reformed, so reformed has a funny connotation in our um, English language, right? You have to go to reformatory school or something. But reformed means we, we dissolve and then we reform in a better way. I will now teach you to make the four all-encompassing vows. So this will sound familiar but different. I vow to take across the limitless living beings of my own mind. I vow to cut off the inexhaustible afflictions of my own mind. I vow to study the immeasurable Dharma doors of my own nature. I vow to realize the supreme Buddha way of my own nature. To study the self, to penetrate so deeply into the workings of the self that you emerge on the other side into freedom, enlightened by the 10,000 events of appearing and disappearing. How to free yourself from the enchantment of the tangle of thoughts. Don't grasp at enlightenment. It exists within and around you, closer than your own blood, your own breath, your own cells. You cannot fall out of it. Just practice diligently, steadily, and it will surely manifest through your body, heart, and mind. We are not in charge of the time or place, but this place and this set-aside time make it possible. Three, please, please practice well. This is the key to opening your own treasure chest.